listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. I mentioned this in another show. When I got out of the hospital, I got on a new heart medicine called Metropolol, and I looked it up, and one of the side effects is bad dreams. And last night, I had probably one of the worst dreams I've had in years. It was I was in a hospital room with a past guest of mine, an older gentleman, an actor named Tony Amendolo, and some guy came into the room and threw a ball at me. And I was like, what are you doing? And then he came after me with a cane, and that's when I woke up, and I, I smacked like three things off my nightstand, and I was terrified. Of course, Joanne slept through it, but hey, these dreams, they're getting crazy. I have to talk to the doctor. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's uh, been in the business a long time. He's a great guitarist, was in a very influential band back in the day. He's got a solo career. He's got a book. And my guest is Richard Lloyd. How you doing, Richard? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, you know, I have had nothing but good dreams in the last couple of years. No. I haven't had a nightmare for um, decades now. Now, <laughs> do you remember your last nightmare? No, I don't. I remember <clears throat> nightmares. Uh, I don't remember dreams. As a matter of fact, they're pretty flimsy, and when you wake up, uh, they kind of get dispersed. Right. But and then when I do remember a dream, it's for I'll remember it for a couple of hours, and then it'll vanish. Well, that's like an idea, you know. When you wake up, and they always say write it down, and then you don't, and, and you say, "Oh, I'm going to remember this," and you wake up the next morning, and you're like, "Shit, I didn't write it down." Yeah, I, I had a dream that I was in a bar, and somebody put a uh, the jukebox on and there was a song playing and it was uh, really good and as I woke up I began I realized that it was nobody's song it was you know just an invention in the dream so I uh, woke up and I went over and got my guitar and I hit a note to try to find a note that was in the song and I hit a wrong note and the whole dream vanished right <laughs> So it's the, the song that got away. Yeah, exactly. And if you ever, if it ever comes back to you, that's what you can call it, the song that got away. Something like that, yeah. So so you play guitar. When when did you start playing guitar? Was I believe it was when you saw the Beatles that turned you into music? Well, you know, I, I have a musical influence through my whole life from the, when I was two years old. And we had a little piano where I was living, and I could play a single notes. You know that was fun. that was fine. I could play two notes, and they always in in their intervals. They always sounded good together. But three notes could sound good or not good. Um, I asked my caretakers if I could uh, if they could teach me the piano, and they were like, "Oh no." We can't play the piano, Richard. And so I asked for lessons. And we were dirt poor in like, uh, in Pittsburgh, a suburb of Pittsburgh called Homestead. That's now like a ghost town. And in any case, piano lessons. So I just hacked around on the, this little a miniature piano that was strangely enough in tune. Uh, I was lucky there until I... Uh, you know, virtually destroyed it, <laughs> playing it with my fists and punching it and stuff. <laughs> then I played, I stole my uh, stepfather had a ukulele 
from when he was in the Air Force. And I used to purloin that in the middle of the night and play it with a guitar, uh, uh, in, as a guitar, not as a ukulele. I didn't use the, it comes with a giant felt pick. I couldn't stand. I would use a quarter or some other coin as a, as a plectrum, as a guitar pick. And so this went on and I played drums. Uh, that's the first musical instrument that I, I had that I, I owned. My parents got me a drum set. It took them like three years. I would, my birthday, I would get a snare. Christmas would come, I'd get a cymbal. You know, it went like that till I had a whole set. And as soon as I had a whole set, you know, I switched to guitar. Yeah. So, so what made you switch to guitar? Not exactly, not exactly as soon as, but, you know, I, ha I still have a kit. But I don't play it. I haven't played it in a long time. But I took drum lessons. And I can read drum nomenclature. Now, now, since you played the drums and you took lessons and you started, you know, pounding around on the, on the piano when you were very young, how was the transition to guitar? Did you think that you had to read music right away or did you just start playing or how was your transition? Was it easy? I, I still can't read music uh, very well. I think that the uh, invention of written music, it, went, it goes hand in hand with the structure of the piano. And as I didn't play the piano, you know, you're playing a stringed instrument. You're, you're in touch with the vibrating strings. It's a completely different, uh, completely different animal. And the written language of music, which is based in C on the piano, and all has a million rules to it. Uh, you know, it's not my forte. That's why they invented. Uh, tablature for the guitar because it's almost impossible to write uh, guitar lines out uh, in staff music that is to say written ordinary written music I still have I'm very slow at reading music you know the old joke is how do you stop a guitarist from playing put written music in front of them right. well that's kind of me <laughs> So you, you, but now, what, how did you teach yourself? What did you have any influences that you wanted to play like? Well, I was a uh, very lucky boy. I lived in Greenwich Village uh, during my formative years, and uh, went to concerts and saw great guitarists very close, and uh, that was really an inspiration. Yes, the Beatles. Uh, you know, I saw the Beatles when they first played Ed Sullivan, and it was uh, and the the, jet, the energy they generated in the world was like a world war, all generated by these four guys singing basically, you know, love songs with all the titles in uh, in what uh, second, first, and second person. You know, I love, love me too. She loves you. Uh, I want to hold your hand. All, all very like, uh, like the beginning readers. You know, John sees the ball. John throws the ball. John has a dog. The dog catches the ball. 
you know, that kind of uh, kindergarten readings, right? Books that we have. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. They 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 were very basic, but they told a story. Exactly, and that was the Beatles. And I wondered what what was making them uh, have the influence that they had. And it was a, years later the guitar started coming into its own in rock music or popular music. And uh, I realized it was the guitar that uh, really made a difference. It was like the I, I just read something. Uh, you you met a guy named uh, in Brooklyn named Velvet Turner. Velvet, like velvet, the cloth with an R in front of the T. Velvet Turner, yeah. Uh, he had apparently been watching TV and saw Jimi Hendrix uh, in very early on, and started jumping up and down, saying, uh, "This is according to his mom." You know, I. I, somehow I know that guy. I got to meet him, uh, you know, and he did. And Jimmy Hendrix took him under his his wing as a kind of mentor protege uh, thing and taught him taught him the guitar. And uh, he lived a couple blocks from. Jimmy had an apartment that was close to where I lived in Greenwich Village, so Velvet would go over there. And then when he left Jimmy's place, he'd come over to my place a lot of times. And we would play on my guitar, passing it back and forth, uh, playing, you know, basically the Jimi Hendrix for first couple records of stuff. That that's what he was teaching Velvet. So you're learning a guitar. Now, what do you think you want to do with this when you're learning it? Did you, did you know you wanted to just be a musician? <laughs> So how do you do that? I know, didn't you go to Boston for a little bit? Oh, you're talking about my tramp years, you know, when you tramp around in the earth. When I left home, a lot of my friends went to Boston to go to music school or school in general. So I went up there and I lived there for almost two years. And then I went to L.A. and I lived there for like two years. And then I came back to New York and knew that something was going to happen and uh, of course it did and I knew all about it before it happened but that's just another uh, might be an, a delusion of mine well tell me about that I, I want to hear that well I just knew that something was going to happen and that I was going to be involved 
you know, and the guitar was going to be involved, obviously. I was going to form a band or be in a band or something that would have an impact on rock, rock history. And uh, as it happened, that's, that's really what happened with the band Television and the club CBGBs. Right, now... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, with television and that whole scene at CBGB, you know, you knew it was going to happen. How did it happen? What were your steps? And when you, you know, you had the feeling it's going to happen, and as you say, it did uh, happen. How did it get from that point of you feeling it to it happening? Well, let's see. We were rehearsing down in Chinatown where our manager, Terry Ork, had a loft. And we rehearsed there. And uh, to get there, you had to go down the Bowery. And one day I was, we were looking for a place, basically, that we could take o- take over and be the house band. Television. You know? Yeah, television. Because we, you know, we had to rent our own little theater or whatever, put on our own shows. And it was terribly difficult. We wanted a bar, you know, where we could play, you know, regularly. And so uh, Tom, Tom Berlane, uh, Nee Miller, uh, came to the rehearsal one day and said, I may have seen the place, you know, there's a place and the guy was, you know, putting up the awning. So it's a new place. You want to go up with me and talk to him. Maybe he's going to have live music and we can play there. So I went up with Tom and we, when we got to, to this place, you looked up and there was this sign CBGB's an unplug, and uh, he was up on a stepladder repairing something. And we said, uh, while he was Hilly Crystal was the guy's name, and we said, "Hey, you gonna have live music?" And he said, "Yep." See what CBGB's stands for: Country Bluegrass and Blues. So we said, "Well, we play a little country, a little country esque. <laughs> it's rock, you know." He said, well, "I'm not gonna have rock music." We said, but it's not loud, and it's like nothing you've ever heard before. And so he says, I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, the next day, I went up again to CBGB's with Terry Ork, our manager, who promised uh, the bar tab to be, uh, be. In other words, he said to uh, Hilly, "Let this band play on a, your worst night." You know, give us your worst night. It turned out to be a Sunday, of course, and sometimes he didn't even open on Sunday. <laughs> uh, a bar on the Bowery, you know, just uh, in uh, under a flop house. So anyway, he gave us the Sunday because Terry York promised him that he was going to invite all alcoholics. <laughs> and so the bar, you know, Kelly would make money at the bar, which of which he did, and uh, our music was so, you know, out of the, out of the box, as it were. Um, he didn't know what to do with us, but Terry, Terry began uh, putting us in there, you know, every couple weeks. So we got it. We now had a regular place to play where basically we were the, we invented it. There, before we got there, there was nobody at the door taking any money. And we put that in for the band. I think it was $2 to come in, and you could come in all night. 
And he had had a couple of acts play in there, uh, you know, a number of bands and different, uh, you know, bluegrass, really, seriously, in Manhattan. You know, you're not going to get too big an audience for banjo music, you know. But um, I guess people started hearing about this place where we were playing, and we made rules such as you you had to play original music, no covers, because we had, you know, there you can go into any city and you can find cover bands. It's really big now to be a cover band that only covers one band. Right. You know, so you get a Tom Petty night or something, and you get a, uh, a Rolling Stones evening, you know, and a band will call themselves something like, uh, you know, Brown Sugar. Right. And, and then play nothing but Rolling Stones songs. Um, but we're, the rules at CBGB's are the opposite. You couldn't do, we didn't have a cover band. You couldn't get a spot. Um, and I th- think pretty close on our heels came a number of other bands, uh, Talking Heads, uh, Blondie, wasn't Blondie yet, but uh, it was, uh, what was the name of them? There was the Three Girls, it was kind of like a doo-wop thing, uh, and they played, and there was some strange band uh, called uh, Secret Leather, or no, Leather Secrets, that did this kind of S&M, black leather, doing sort of uh, Velvet underground kind of stuff. But it was original. And uh, the girl in the front was like this black leather uh, wearing with a whip. And she would whip the stage while she sang and stuff like that. You know, then, then eventually, uh, and the way we had it structured, you would only have two bands play, and they would each play two sets all night. And, you know, these were 45-minute or 50-minute sets. And so, uh, you know, for instance, uh, we played a lot Talking Heads opening for us. But Talking Heads would play, then Television would play, then Talking Heads would play again, and then Television would play again. So Talking Heads would get the third slot which is all, you know, prime time. Right. So it kind of defeat. We got that idea from the double feature, the movie. You know, Terry was really into movies. When he uh, would take a day off, he'd spend it in Times Square going to movies from, you know, noon till midnight. And uh, anyway, we got that idea from the double feature, the movies, and there was only two bands. That allowed us to play more often um, and we began doing Saturdays Fridays and Saturday and then Saturday and Sunday and finally oh, we at one point we were doing four nights a week Thursday Friday Saturday and Sunday and we would have different bands play with us and Ramon showed up and uh, Blondie formed itself and there were a bunch of other bands that, uh, that came in and they were all good and all very, very different. You know, that was the uh, other thing. Uh, Talking Heads was not like Blondie. 
which was not like television, which was not like Ramones. And so we had all these different uh, sort of the, the menu had a real uh, quality to it. Now, and, uh, yeah, no, you know, you you're, you know, you keep you know, your band was television. And you guys had, you know, you started at CBGB. How did you guys meet? How did television start? Television started because I was in New York. I come back. I heard about the Mercer Art Center and the New York Dolls, and that there was a scene in New York, and I was in LA. So I said to myself, or it was said to me, you know that. There's a scene in New York, this is going to probably be it, what I've been waiting for. So I got a ride to New York from LA in a, in a uh, fancy car, a Lotus Europa. And we drove across the US and while we were driving across the US, the Mercer Arts Center fell down. So there went the scene. So there I was in New York and uh, trying to find a place, you know, that would be the scene. And I, I found out that everybody hung out at Max's Kansas City. So I went there and uh, there was something called the back room, which was, you know, always full of the, the, uh, the hippest, the modest, you know, the most uh, whatever. I was frequented by Andy Warhol's people and you know, rock people and journalists and and movie makers and artists, etc. So then I met Terry Ork there, and he had an extra room in his loft, and I moved into it. And then one day he said, "I I know a guy who does what you do," and he I said, "What the hell does that mean? Uh, does what I do? What do I do, Terry?" <laughs> You tell me. He said, well, you, you play guitar on your own by yourself. And uh, this guy's doing us like three songs at an audition night at a place called Reno Sweeney's. And maybe you want to go see him. And I said, well, why would I want to see somebody who's doing what I'm already doing? Right. You know, it just takes time out from me, from me doing it. <laughs> the day came of the, this event, and it, it turned out to be Tom Miller, neighbor Lane, uh, at Reno Sweeney's playing three songs on electric guitar with a little amp on a chair. And uh, while he was playing his songs, it came to me that uh, he was a good. He was good. He was very good, but he was missing something important. And I realized that what he was missing, I had. And, you know, I'm not so egotistical to, to think that I was a, a complete package, too. So I realized I was missing something. And what I was missing, he kind of had uh, the bases covered on. So I told Terry, I said, look, he was going to put the, together a band under my name. And I said, well, forget about that. And put this guy and me in a band and you'll have something that'll make history. You know, you want, Terry wanted to manage a band and create a scene uh, based, 
based kind of on the envy of Warhol's relationship to the Velvet Underground and the uh, Flying Electric Circus or whatever it was. Um, so Terry let us basically bought equipment and let us uh, gigs for us. And that was really uh, how it all started. And so I, Tom came down to the loft and we swapped the guitar back and forth. And then he brought Richard Myers, me, Richard L, with him. Uh, and then they went, we did that for a while, and then they went off and whispered to each other. And then they came back and said, uh, yeah, let's try it. You know, a band thing. So then we had, the, we had me and Tom. We needed a bass player and a drummer. So we talked Richard into playing bass with us. He had done it previously with the Neon Boys, which had been a, had been a trio. I had no, no idea they had done this uh, Neon Boys thing and they cut a 45, you know, and, uh, you know, self-published it, which was extraordinarily rare in those days. Everybody was waiting for, you know, the big opportunity for to, to get discovered, uh, to become a star, blah, 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 whoop, whoop. And uh, we weren't about that. I mean, it, sure, we wanted to get signed, you know, because we wanted to make our music under the, the, the most optimum conditions and record labels had the money and the support and they could get their records into stores, et cetera. But uh, we weren't afraid of doing it ourselves. So we made our own single, which was Little Johnny Jewel. The song was too long as a uh, one side of, of a uh, 45 record. So we split it in half, parts one and two. And we took that from the, that was Tom's idea, uh, from James Brown doing uh, Hot Pants you know, part one and part two, or, you know, uh, I can't remember the other ones, but and he would often do that, a long song on two sides of a 45. So we did that, and the strangest thing happened. We got reviewed in a tiny little review in Penthouse, the men's magazine. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all these orders came in like in shopping bags for, of people who were sending $2 in for this single. When we would send it out, you know, we would have a band meeting and, uh, and instead of rehearsing, we would sit around and put up, uh, take the cardboard, 45 size cardboards, and put the record in between the cardboards and then address it. And it was all done by hand. You know, we were our own, our own record company until we got signed by Electra. And there were a lot of other comp companies who, you know, came sniffing around, but none of them uh, wanted Well, Seymour Stein of Sire Records, who signed the Ramones, and uh, who else did he sign? He signed a whole bunch of Talking Heads to Sire, and he was 
terribly interested in signing television, and but we said no. We weren't interested in the, and because his budgets for the first records were so so low, we needed a, a good budget to make a good record. We didn't want to make a record, you know, in two days on the fly. So we just put it off and waited until uh, when we got the deal we wanted to get. And Electra was a great label. It had The Doors, Love, Tim Buckley. It was a very much an artist's label. So when they wanted to sign us, we were, you know, happy. <laughs> Now, were, did did you get the? Did they know about you because of your days at the CBGB? Yeah, I was, I was playing CBGBs. That uh, you know, eventually a, a year went by, and we started to fill the place up and pack the place when we whenever we played there. And record, it took a year and a half to get people in suits to even think about coming down. To the Bowery to listen to a band in a crummy little bar, uh, you know, that with, with bums lying on the street in front of the place because uh, upstairs was a flop house where, you know, uh, down and out uh, alcoholic bums could get a bed for a night. You know, it wasn't even a hotel, it was like a dormitory. And I think it was a dollar sixty five when. It, to stay there for one night, you know, and people would uh, fall asleep on the stairs or pass out, I should say, rather, you know, or in front of CBGBs, you'd have to step over them. And people thought that was dangerous, and, you know, they didn't want to get their feet wet in, in urine. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 when you started packing CBGB, what kind of crowd were you bringing in and why were those were those people making down taking the trek in the, the bad area just because they heard you guys were special yeah that's about the size of it the, the audience was surprisingly creative though it was very much like the, the junior maxes in terms of the crowd we got photographers obviously you see that that scene got uh, photographed in an incredible amount, uh, you know, all the bands and uh, all the photographers. And when we got journalists who came down and wanted to write about this scene, this scene we got, uh, you know, other musicians who would come and want to have it start to play there. And, uh, you know, it just went like that. We had uh, artists, painters, you know, and regular audience members. The, the idea was that, you know, everybody was talented. Now, uh, the audience, too. Okay. Well, now, you said Electra signed you. Now, when they signed you, how long did they give you to make Marquee Moon? Did they sit there and go, here's the time frame? No, they didn't do that. You know, it's it's all a, a collaborative effort, as it were. It took us... Uh, I, you know, six weeks, two weeks to record the basics, two weeks for overdubs, and two weeks for mixing. That was how most records were done back then, in six week per six week period. Now so that was the 
structure we used. Now the record comes out, and what's people's reaction to it when it comes out? Because you already had a fa- you had a fan base because people were coming see you to see you live. How was the reaction uh, to the record? There was also a bunch of journalists from England who were like you know foreign correspondents who had been writing about CBGBs and the scene developing there for like two years before we got over there and our record came out. And it's out on the cover of all their their music magazines as like a masterpiece and blah, blah, blah. I don't know what Rolling Stone did to it. I don't remember. Uh, in the United States, the it wasn't as pronounced a success. You know, and uh, it was one of those records that just said, you know, it's not that everybody bought it, but everybody that did buy it became band member you know they all picked up their guitars and we can try this you know what do you think made it such a special album because you know if if you read you know people say it's one of the top 10 debuts ever it falls in list as one of the top 100 albums it's it's just it's a very critically acclaimed album what do you as someone who is involved in it what do you think made it so special dedicated that's for for sure um you know we wanted this vision to be transmitted uh, you know it, there was um the uh atlantic records at one point jerry wexler wanted to sign us uh, he was a big a and r guy and uh, their company was run by ahmed erdogan and we did an audition for, for them. And uh, I went to the bathroom. So we took a break and I passed the control room where they were listening to the music. And and I heard, overheard Ahmed Erdogan say to Jerry, Jerry, I can't sign this band. This is not ice music. So, so there was something other planetly <laughs> about the band. I mean, and the record is, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those debut records that uh, can't be overcome, like Are You Experienced or The Doors, you know, or Love, or their first record, uh, you know, it's such a benchmark that uh, it just is. So when you have a benchmark and you do that, how is it going into the studio for when you recorded a venture. I mean, was it something that you guys, you seemed very in original, so you seemed like you probably don't want to do the same thing. What was it like when you went in the studio for that? Well, we had a different engineer. The record sounds completely different. Um, but the other, the real, the problem for me was that in Marky Moon, we, we had our set, you know, we had a whole slew of songs that we'd been playing for three or four years. And so we had those to pick from, to put on the record. When we got to a second record that we could have done, we could have continued to take our stuff that we played out live and, uh, you know, and made an, a, another great second record. But Tom wanted to write in the scene. He was like... Uh, wanted to write in the studio 
you know, so he was starting to not come up with lyrical ideas in the, and not coming up with songs, complete songs uh, at all. And as he was the lyricist, you know, uh, hang on for the ride. It was basically like, well, you make the, we'll make the record super quick and then Tom can take six months uh, messing around with it until he gets something he likes and vocals and etc. cetera. Uh, so it was, in a way, uh, it was a kind of a disappointment to me personally. But it almost didn't matter because we had Marquee Moon. Uh, nobody can, you know, it's an undeniable fact. It's, it's like living proof of something. Right. And if we'd never made another record, it wouldn't have mattered. Now, what led to your guys' breakup after the second album? Was it something that just you were, Marquee Moon was so big, you weren't really sure what direction you wanted to go into? I mean, why'd you guys break up? No, I think Tom, Tom especially wanted more of the money. And, uh, and he didn't like, he didn't especially like the uh, freedom that the band members had in television. You know, he was a very controlling person. And uh, I think he's verges on paranoia in terms of that control. And Billy Ficka, our drummer, wouldn't, you know, would uh, contribute his own ideas and I would contribute my own. But uh, he didn't very much, he didn't like having to have anybody else have any say in the, the band so it was easier for him to just leave the band and take all the money f for the next record himself which then I did too as I was we were all four signed separately and collectively to Electra so you know I, I we said uh, I said Tom you know I've been thinking about leaving anyway why don't we just call it a day and we'll tell people, uh, you know, that we have to go back to our home planet and uh, we'll, be, we'll come back, you know, uh, maybe when the, the sun uh, cycle is over, you know, 11 and a half. What is it? The Saros cycle, the sunspots yeah. or the eclipse. Right. I think it's an 18-year cycle or an 11 well, the sunspots are an 11-year cycle. So anyway, anyway, that was our, our kind of playful way of diluting this uh, really traumatic breakup, you know. And uh, I think it came as a shock to Fred and Bill that, uh, that the band was going to dissolve. But Tom wanted to go his own way and be the big gunner. And uh, so he did, and you know he made that he made a, a slew of uh, solo records. And uh, I mean, I don't—it's not music I was listening to, his solo stuff. But uh, then again, you know, he's got a lot of fans, and uh, and he has something uh, special. But then as far as drummers go, so does Billy Ficka. 
and he's one of the great drummers, un, un uh, heralded, you know, musicians in, in the rock genre, and a fabulous drummer. So, and great bass player. So we had all the bases covered, but Tom wanted to basically play with a guy who would play like a drum machine. Okay, so one, one, one question. How did you get the name television? Uh, Richard Hell came up with that. We sat down and we called ourselves Goo Goo for the first, like, three weeks till we... So everybody was supposed to go away and come back with suggestions. And uh, Richard showed up with a piece of typewritten typewritten paper with uh, a bunch of names on it, but then he had television surrounded by typewritten stars and uh, plugged away for that. I think he convinced Tom based on the initials TV, Tom Verlaine. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it was also telling a vision. But the, the, what uh, we really wanted was a, a word that was the same in all languages. So you don't, I don't know what you call a television in, uh, you know, in Russia, but the television is television. So you had yeah, to, yeah, so, okay, so now when you guys broke up, you went out and started recording solo. Now, what was that like for you? Because, you know, you'd worked with a band for a long time, but you knew you had something special. What was it like when you first went into the studio to record your first solo album? Well, I had a bunch of songs I'd written during the course of television that were not suitable for television songs. So it wasn't that hard for me to, um, you know, come up with material. But they made me do some demos, you know, and I, and I had a, if I had to do two demos. The first one got rejected and then we did another one and uh, I had a, a great uh, A&R person who really fought for me, uh, Max Ansartori, uh, R.I.P., rest in peace. And uh, she really believed in me. So we went in and made alchemy. One thing she said was that her big rule was no drugs. And of course, by this time, I was uh, completely addicted to a number of different substances, but I wasn't going to about to tell her. And uh, so anyway, we went in and we made alchemy, and then um, that that was going to be a big deal until I, they had a business meeting where they were going to hook me up with some big management firm, and uh, and I got too stoned. I should have not gone. Should have said I have a stomach illness. I can't show up or a diarrhea or something. But I went to the meeting and proceeded to nod out. And uh, you know, <laughs> famous, famous last uh, act of uh, you know an artist that I mean it's a, it's a famous story, really. Anyway, the next time I went to Electra, the, my poster was gone off the wall, and I, I couldn't get them on the phone. 
And then they kind of dumped me then. So alchemy didn't do as well as it could have. So that happens. It's still thought of as a a great record in the term, and one of the four bears of what they call pop, power pop or rock pop. So it didn't, it didn't, Electra dumped you, so then what, what are you going to do now? I mean, you don't have a record company, you have songs, are you still doing drugs, or did you learn that after well, Electra I, dumped I, you? I went through, a, I went through the haze of, of drugs, I got uh, straight in, basically in 80, the 80, 81, 82, 83 were my, the nadir of my life, that the down period where I was really, uh, well, I was hooked, and uh, I was a junkie. And it took a long time for me to pull out of that nosedive, and I did in the middle of 84, I got straight, and I, like, immediately uh, got a record deal with a Swedish company uh, who... I had a friend go over to Sweden and he called me from there and said, you know, there's a guy over here who has a record company, wants you to make a record for him. I was like, oh, really? I said, uh, he says, yeah, and he wants you to, you know, I said, well, when does he want this? He says, as soon as you can get your papers uh, together. And that became Field of Fire, which was recorded in Sweden. So you recorded that, and then you recorded another CD after that. Now, also, you guys... I'm sorry, but there was five years, six years between the two. One came out in 79, Alchemy, 85. How many years is that? I can't count. Six. No, yes, six. Six years. So it was six years between records for me that time. Now, in 92, television recorded another album. How did that come about? How did you guys get back together? Oh, gee whiz. My manager at the time and Tom's manager at the time uh, met each other at a party and uh, casually asked, you know, what's Tom doing? and his manager says, not much. And he said, well, what's Richard doing? And, and uh, my manager said the same thing, not much. So they said, well, let's try to get them, uh, get them to see if they want to do something together again. So we reformed television to do a third record. And we had a bidding war for that record. One of the, you know, like 23 record companies wanted to sign us. We went with uh, Capital, uh, who had had the Beatles, you know, and that was still a third of their income, I think, the Beatles. <laughs> still is, I'm sure. Right. Like Frank Sinatra and RCA, you know, just perennial sellers. In any case, we put television back together. We did this record for Capital, and as soon as it came out, Capital... It underwent a restructuring and everybody that had signed us and everybody that liked the record and everybody was going to work on it 
suddenly weren't working for the company anymore and there were like new people who didn't understand this at all and uh, basically that record didn't uh, also didn't break out of the box in terms of radio you know when Marky Moon came out we said um, what are we going to do about radio you're not a real you know we're not really a uh, singles band and they said well yeah, we're going to, I don't know what we're going to do with radio. And we said, well, why don't you send it out to college radio stations? Because they have open-ended, uh, uh, what do you call those? Just a list of, song, of, of records they can play. And, uh, and they said, oh, no, college radio doesn't sell records. And, uh, of course, a couple of years later, they college radio exploded right so we, we were ahead of the game there too we also said oh why don't we make up some you get you know you, the record company uh give us some money we'll make some t-shirts it'll be free it'll be advertising uh for the record and it'll also allow us to uh sell them at shows and make a little extra money and they were like we're not in the uh, clothing manufacturer business. We're in the record making business. So there was merchandising right. that we had thought of. And uh, they went, ah, nah, that doesn't do anything. And then, of course, a couple of years later, <laughs> right. merchandising, is, you know, is a home run. Now, now well, after I, after you did the television this, that album in '92, you've gone on to do a few solo albums. What is it like for you to do a solo album? What's the difference? You've had a few of them. What, do you feel you're growing? I, had, I think it's eight or nine records now. Um, you know, and I, I've got a good catalog of songs um, on those records until. The latest was a uh, Plowboy release. Plowboy's a company in uh, Nashville called, uh, oh, I'm just going to say the title of my book. Um, my brain is washed out. Uh, what's the difference? You know, obviously the personnel, uh, although on Alchemy I used Fred Smith, and so did Tom on his first record, uh, called Tom Verlaine, of all things. Um, anyway, uh, you know what happened after uh, after television disbanded the second time? I ended up playing guitar with Matthew Sweet for a couple of years. Okay. In between my own stuff, and I did a, a record with John Doe of X, I did his Meet John Doe, it's called. I was uh, played in it with him for a while. And, you know, as a session guitarist, did a number of sessions and stuff. I'm on like 10 Matthew Sweet albums. Okay, Matthew's been on the show. Matthew's been on the show, yeah, he's a great guy. So, I know, I think recently, you still perform... I think you recently played, I think it was you, at Randy Now's Man Cave in Bordentown. Oh, God, yeah. What a weird place. A little one. A little record store. It was a lot of fun. Hey, I saw Graham Parker there. Did you? Yeah. Now, Great. Now, was he good? 
What's that? Was Graham good? Yeah, I went both nights. I went both nights because he had done my show like two weeks before. So Uh, put me on the list, and it was good because he told stories. Of course, the second night, his... The mic blew out. I think it was because the now man is ah. is so. I mean the 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 amp blew out, so he had to do the rest of the show <laughs> acoustic. Now, yeah, now, now tell me about your book. In terms of what you wrote a book. Yeah, I wrote an autobiography, basically a memoir. Now, what made um, you decide to do that? Well, I had decided to do that uh, many years ago, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to write a book. I had no publisher, and uh, I got something, when the computers came, you know, everybody started to have to type again, Right. and I can't stand typing, so I went out and I bought voice recognition software, which was just starting to be good. And it's terrific now. It's the basis of all of these, you know, uh, speak-to-type kind of programs that you can have. Anyway, I started talking my stories into this uh, program, and I ended up with like, oh, jeez, it would have been like six or 800 pages of various rock stories. I thought I would do a, a book of vignettes, little little shards, little pieces of like this event or that event that, that I went through in my life. It's also a kind of confessional, you know, writing an autobiography is, is a, it's, you gotta be careful with your ego and uh, to be honest. And so there's the good of me and the bad of me in the book. It's called Everything is Combustible. And you can get it at Barnes and Nobles. You should be able to get it at local music store. Uh, and if not, ask for it, for God's sake. And you can you can get it from your website. If you link, There's a, it branches off to another website. Yeah. Yeah, you can get it from, I think that goes directly to the publisher. Yeah. Small company in Maine. Now, what are you up to these days? Are you you still playing? Are you still writing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I rehearsed with some people yesterday. As a matter of fact, we're going to hit the boards again on Monday. Let's see what happens. You know, I do sporadic shows. And I uh, intend to continue that. I know I'm booked in Spain early next year. Uh, that's in the works. Uh, put some stuff around that. Well, we'll see. Well, that's awesome, man. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad you took the time to talk to me because uh, you're such a oh, part of history. Well, and uh, the other day, I was down the beach, and my fiance likes to lay out on the beach. I don't. I always walk on the beach. And I listened. To, I listened to Marquee Moon where I took a walk, and uh, it's really good. It's really good, like to walk to. It's very. It's it's very. It's it's one of those songs, one of those albums that it's just nice on the beach as I was walking. I just really enjoyed it. Great. I'm glad to hear that. So yes, yeah, so I want to thank you. Now your website is Richard Lloyd. People, that's with two L's. Richard L L O Y D dot com. And are you on any other kind of? 
that's the one I haven't used in uh, centuries. Um, it's there, but it's old. Okay. And I don't, I don't produce. You could go to uh, everythingiscombustible.com and you'll see. Oh, they all connect with one another. So go, you know, what the heck? Go to richardlloyd.com and follow the the, the little magic footsteps to other places. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you. So, people, please go buy the book. Um, listen to Marky Moon. Listen to his solo stuff. You know, you can find all that stuff. And now is a time where new music's not as good as it used to be. So you got to listen to the old stuff. So go back. And so uh, people, check out Richard Lloyd. Check out my website, people. It's uh, coopertalk.net. You can find 730 episodes up there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter at coopertalk. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you.